Welcome to Reset with Amber Lyon. I'm your host, Amber Lyon, and this is the show where we teach you how to use natural medicines and alternative therapies to reset your mind and therefore reset your life. And today we're going to be talking about MDMA and its potential to cure post-traumatic stress disorder. And we have an amazing guest who we're so excited to have today, Rachel Hope. She's a mother of four who used MDMA successfully to treat her post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. And thank you, Rachel, for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You had told me that you battled with post-traumatic stress disorder for nearly 20 years. Can you explain to people listening what that's like to, to have to battle with this disorder for so many of your days? I mean, it was more than 20 years. I, was, I got my diagnosis at 20 years. Before then, I it was still had a lot of symptoms, but there wasn't a name for it. Um, the best analogy I can give is being in a prison from the inside. And the bars are just constantly having to live life adapting to these symptoms of that are irrational. Like where the fight or flight reflexes are turned on and it won't turn off. And there's no, no way you can like think your th way out of it. I mean, logically I say, oh, this car is not going to crash into me right now. But my body and my nervous system and my anxiety storytelling in my head was any second I'm going to die. So living like that creates <laughs> enormous amount of symptoms. I mean, I could just go on. It, it, I, I think it's pretty amazing that I'm sitting here now because most of that time I thought I was going to die any minute. I mean, I really did. It was hard to plan for the future. So the fact that I'm like, ah, I'm probably going to live and I have all these things I have plans. Um, it's like I started my life in 2005. Before that, it was some kind of weird survival thing, like a monster of just figuring out how to live today. So what were, so you were saying that you were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. You were constantly on hyperarousal. How was that um, affecting my your physical, physical health? Um, well, I mean, my, my sleep was completely disturbed. I had um, like night terrors times 10. So I never really got a good night's sleep. Oh, because of the high anxiety and... Um, just panic attacks and just disruption. I had irritable bowel syndrome for, if anybody knows what that is, it's, it's outrageous. I mean, it, to try to try and not, not to have complete control over your digestive system on an ongoing basis is not only is that incredibly disruptive to having kind of normal life, but also just having nutrition. And so I was, I was always sick. I was always, um, you know, just withdrawn and humiliated and just coping. But um, I'm kind of surprised I didn't die <laughs> because there were times where I was either, you know, evacuating in some way where I wasn't probably getting almost no nutrition for a long time and no sleep. Um, I think the only reason I probably did survive is I was blessed with a child. I had a child in 1991 and I kind of just lived for him. But otherwise, I, you know, it, it, when you're a parent, you can just make yourself do everything. But, um, yeah, I mean, I was in chronic pain. My injuries or illnesses would never heal. I would have things that just never heal on my body. Um, my digestion was a mess. It was an terrible embarrassment. Can you, can you imagine how that would be a barrier to having intimate relationships or, or even having the confidence to go out or plan trips? I mean, it was lockdown. It was prison. 
And you had mentioned at one point you were on 15 prescription medications. Yeah, there was like 15 prescriptions. I had a, an accident in 2002. My, I've been in three bad accidents, none of which I caused, which gave me a tremendous amount of anxiety about being completely helpless. Like anything could crash into me at any moment, and I really had no power to stop that. So they got... And, and just feeling like an unlucky person and, and all this. I, and at 2002, I, it was a third bad accident I had had. And I'm like, okay, fine. I will do what the doctors want. And I literally said, okay, I'll, you can prescribe that to me. I had stopped saying no. And it was like 15 bottles sitting there. And I tried, but they were making me crazy. I mean, I think I had to hold so tight to my sanity because it was, it was almost impossible to live. So anything that was mind-altering, I generally stayed away from because I thought that's the, completely the wrong direction. The only thing I have is my sanity. The only thing I have is like, okay, this is a table. This is, I, you know, I know where I am. If I start loosening that up, then I'm gone. So when those kinds of drugs, I mean, they just seem to help, you know, make me less aware of the pain and anxiety and the, the problems that I had but they didn't solve it, so I felt like it was a bad deal. I mean, ultimately, what was I going to do long-term? Just keep taking the drugs forever and keep enduring the side effects? It was, it was going to rob me of anything I had. The only thing I had was my consciousness, you know? And what was it the, the core cause of your post-traumatic stress disorder? I know for many people, it's multiple situations. Can you think back to a time in your life that may have, have caused it? Well, for many years, we just dealt with, I was um, severely abused as a child. I was very neglected, and I, there was tr uh, quite a bit of uh, sexual and psychological and physical abuse throughout my childhood. So that was an easy thing to see. And then the car accidents, of course, when I was 11 years old, I was hit by a truck, I mean, <laughs> and partially paralyzed from it, and I had to work very hard to survive massive head injuries, you know, like the worst spinal injuries, the things that you think it's stuff of horror. Okay, that was probably a good explanation. But, you know, through my treatment with MDMA and, and learning more of the stories from, like, veterans who didn't have all that, but they have PTSD next to somebody who doesn't have PTSD who had way worse things happen, I'm believing, and many people that I've talked to who work with veterans especially say, hey, there's a theme coming up here where early preverbal trauma sets a person up to be predisposed to, to post-traumatic stress disorder. So trauma that happened in your childhood. Right, but preverbal, mm -hmm. precognitive. So it could be even a very, you know, a traumatic uh, birth, for instance, could be kind of the way that wires a person that something really bad happens, it registers in this catastrophic way. Because there's lots of people who have very bad things happen to them. Some just create a disorder where they're, they're completely malfunctioning, and some go, well, I had something really bad happen to me, and it, I'm stressed about it, but I'm not in a disorder. And which, why? It is, I don't think it could be smarter or, you know, I'm not a stupid, weak person, but I got this incredibly, Trump, you know, horrifying disorder for decades and I worked my tail off to get well and I couldn't get well. Why am I different than somebody who, uh, who didn't have that happen? You know, and I, and I really believe it was early, the, the seed of it, the root of it is early infant trauma. You go into my 
um, records, my medical records as a child, I was, I was operated on with no anesthesia at the age of two weeks and two months old, two surgeries. Because back then, they didn't believe that you should use anesthesia. They would do sedation, but not do anything about the, the anesthesia. Now they do. It was like in the 80s that they started to do this for infants. So there, you've got all these kids all over who've had procedures done in infancy that just predisposes them to PTSD. They could have a car accident and they never recover. So that's my theory. I don't think it's, there's not, there is some research about that, but I think that if more research got put towards this, they'd probably discover that this is, might be the case. So you're suffering these horrific symptoms mm -hmm. of post-traumatic stress disorder. What led you to decide to participate in a study that used MDMA psychotherapy? Because you're smiling now. I mean, <laughs> the last you were person. someone who was staunchly anti-drug. You mm -hmm. had uh, listened to what the government and DEA told you about all these drugs for so many years, that they're harmful, they can't be used safely medically. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember, I, I do remember watching that episode of Oprah Winfrey where she showed a brain scan and they said that that was holes in the brain caused by MDMA, Swiss cheese-like holes, and that just terrified me personally from going near these substances. It later turned out that that wasn't even a real scan of damage caused by MDMA. It was just showing cerebral normal blood flow through the brain. Oprah still hasn't gone back and corrected Ooh. that, unfortunately. Ooh. But we're facing years <laughs> and years of propaganda. So what was it that made you think, okay, I'm, I'm going to try ecstasy uh, as a mother of four to, to cure my PTSD? Combination of desperation and blackmail. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I was a total teetotaler. Like I said, I was extremely attached to the, at least I knew what reality was, you know, and I didn't want to monkey with that. Also, on top of the propaganda that I believed, I drunk the Kool-Aid on that, um, there were so many people that I had seen who were these burnout hippies who'd fried their brain on acid, and I was, I, I'm not even going to go there, you know? I, I mean, that turned me off, and I did not see any psychedelics at all especially anything related to ecstasy as having any medicinal value. Now, that was just outrageous. So why did I end up in the study? I mean, I'm the most unlikely of people. And I, had, I got to the point where, you know, I just said resigned. In 2004, I'm like, oh, I'm this, I'm a, this crazy person, and I just function like, I, I'm like an uh, amputee, but I'm psychologically and emotionally like an amputee. And you'd be we just live our lives, you know, and tell everybody else to accommodate it. And we're fine. Oh, well, I had this assistant who didn't like that. And he said, you can't give up. And then he was horrified that I didn't, I had lost faith. And he was, um, and also he was really disturbed that the phone would ring and I'd jump and scream. And I'd like, I'd be hyperventilating for three minutes. Let me catch my breath before we could like continue the conversation. I had all these symptoms that he watched. And I, I, my hair was like falling out. I mean, I was, I was so ill. And, and I had gotten this like macabre, dark sense of humor about it. And it was, it was becoming really problematic for him. So one day he prints out like two inches of all the clinical trials for treating post-traumatic stress disorder in the country and drops them on my desk and says, you pick one or I'm leaving. Wow. And I was so you, had no, you had no choice if you wanted to keep him no. working for you. Yeah. And I, you know, I was, it was hard to get someone to work for me. I was, you know, not 
not your easy <laughs> person to work with. And so, so you, you chose this study and you fly to South Carolina? Correct? Yeah. I mean, I chose the study because it was the greatest ender dog. Mm. I read all the protocol for all the studies and everybody else seemed to be getting such a leg up and the, the FDA and uh, the powers that be made it almost impossible for the study to take place. Like looking for the, the candidate that they needed for the study, I thought, not possible. The fact that I happen to fit that, you know, my age and exactly only having PTSD and no dual diagnosis, no person, you know, no self-medication, no alcohol or drug addiction, et cetera, et cetera. I thought, oh my gosh, they can't do it without me. <laughs> this, they're going to study this, but I had very little expectations. I had very little hope that it would actually work. I was kind of just fulfilling what he said to do. And I thought it was interesting that I fit the protocol, even though the protocol was obviously intended to destroy the, the clinical trial. I mean, I fight for the underdog. Um, and I got accepted and I guess uh, formal treatment started in 2005 in South Carolina. So they had to fly me 6,000 miles from Maui, Hawaii, back and forth across the country. I was invested. <laughs> so you you decide to participate in the study. You mm -hmm. head to South Carolina. Describe what it was like when you were given the MDMA and, and were you given it in a pill uh, mm -hmm. intravenously or? <laughs> no, in a pill and um, inside the clinic. So there was a tremendous amount of preparation, psychotherapy preparation. And um, so the set and setting and the, the intention was very strongly set. So at the time I, I got my first uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy treatment, I was very prepared, but I'd already had a placebo where nothing, it didn't work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'd already had this entirely fantastic psychotherapy and then got randomly selected for placebo. So I could say, no, that didn't work. Nothing had changed about me. I got invited back to be, to have the medicine. When that happened, it's a little white pill. Mm -hmm. I'm in the safety of this clinic. Okay. And then it was like, I, some the things I compared to is like being lit up like a Christmas tree. Like everything in my whole brain felt like it was turned on all at once, which wasn't exactly comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, it was like a well awareness times 200 <laughs> or more. Another thought process that I had after the fact was like maybe almost like shock treatment because I had a lot of a convulsive reaction to it and my uh, rapid eye movement therapy was fairly off, like just, I couldn't control it for hours on end. Like actually after the treatment, I could barely open my eyes. So I had a kind of a radical um, experience. And mind you, I think that the dosage given in a clinical setting is pretty high. So mm -hmm. people who are comparing it, if they are actually getting a pure drug that's not, um, you know, I don't think the drugs out there called ecstasy or are really probably the same drug because I think yeah, it's... Yeah, that's an important you know, thing to mention to yeah, a lot yeah, of our I listeners don't. is that a lot of the stuff being sold on the street as MDMA, sometimes methalone or other chemicals, mm -hmm. you don't even know what it is. And so that's why it's, it is extremely dangerous, especially if you don't have a test kit to just get MDMA at, at a festival and, mm -hmm. and try it. Yeah, and I think that... I, but that contextualizes why I'm saying, no, I don't think it was a warm, fuzzy experience for me. Um, it was transformative. Um, but I will say it was something like 
getting acquainted with my very, very best self. I mean, if you picture who you were on your best day when you everything lined up and if you were in your zone and you accomplished exactly what you and you were fantastically focused and then you times that times 50, that's your state of consciousness. You're at your best, best self. Then, because you set your intention, you get to turn that best, best self onto your most damaged self. The inner healer. That's profound. And I got to see uh, the belief systems that were holding the PTSD in place. And Trying what to, were yeah. some of those? Oh, man. I mean, when we were little kids, especially, or just unconscious, we just, our brains just try and explain and fill in the gaps of why this happened. You know, and it can be very unconscious. It could be a, a global thing. Mankind is doomed and God hates us. I mean, we make these decisions unconsciously to explain traumatic events. Especially as children, in my case, I, you know, I, I believe that I was unwanted, disposable, unnecessary, um, that any minute I was going to die and it was like a cruel game. I mean, there were so many layers of, of belief structures neurologically wired into me to help explain why I had these traumatic events. Well, I was able to see with the help of the MDMA and the psychotherapy setting that those were just things that stories I made up. There was no innate meaning to getting hit by a truck. But when you're 11 years old, you start to explain, you know, I just, you know, I was doomed. I wasn't supposed to be born. And I'm always going to have things happen to me until I'm dead. That's what I heard my little child self say. So, of course, she was in there prepared to get hit by a truck every day. And that was just eating away at me. So this incredibly awake, intelligent, best self got to talk to her and explain a whole lot of things. And this is all why you're under the influence. Oh, as your yeah. your brain lighting up like a Christmas tree, you're mm -hmm. kind of stepping outside your body and, and talking to your former selves. But I came there to work. I mean, if some if you just took MDMA, you're gonna go, Wow, I have some realizations and and they may not actually change you. But with the psychotherapy and the intention and the set and setting and everything that that it's like a rebirth where there's all hands it's a team creates a, a, a potential, a window of opportunity. And in that, the intention was set, like, I'm going to rewire my brain. I desired that more than anything else. And in some ways, I mean, it's amazing. I think, yeah, you could probably take that drug and say, well, my desire is to forget everything and dance until I drop and fall asleep. Then you're probably going to get that. <laughs> but if your intention is, I want to completely repair anything in me that's in the way of being me being my greatest self and making the greatest contribution I can make to that which I care for. Then, now we're talking, that's a really good reason to, to utilize this medicine because if that's what you want, you will get that. And so for those listening and who are thinking of experimenting with psychedelic drugs, set and setting really is key. You have to go into it with a particular mindset. You're not advised to use these substances when you're particularly stressed or 
in a situation where you're not prepared for them. Mm -hmm. Also, the setting is key. You don't want to be doing these substances at a concert or uh, at a beach party. You want to be doing it in a setting where you feel comfortable that you're not going to get lost or something in the natural environment is going to harm you. You also want to be doing it potentially lying down, as in a lot of these studies, with a blindfold over your eyes and potentially with a sitter, someone who is familiar with psychedelic use who can sit next to you and make sure that you're okay. All of those are vital to having an amazing experience which or a transformative experience, which is what you went through. And could you describe some specific insights you had while you were on the MDMA that have led to your transformation today? Well, one in particular that stands out to me is my relationship to being vulnerable and available and receptive. Somehow I had got it in my mind that that meant you were an easy target and a sitting duck. And that meant that all things bad were going to come to you. So I had really put a big armor around myself. And yeah, maybe I did some good job keeping some random bad stuff out, but I kept everything else out. I kept the love and the support um, and intimate healing relationships out as well. Now, from a psychoanalytic standpoint, you can figure that out in conventional therapy. We all, we almost all, everybody who has this defense system is going to go, yeah, you have that defense system. Oh, good luck dismantling it. It thinks it's saving your life. Those defense systems are there because they're convinced they're keeping you alive. They're not going to just go away without something really transformative. So um, that's one. Um, it and then I think that's why my symptoms kept on getting better. So my new self went into my, after my, my second, I had two treatments, you know, in 2005, two months apart. And then my new, my, and then my symptoms dropped 80% and then kept going away. So after your first right. treatment. Because it's feedback loop. Mm -hmm. So my new self, who suddenly can actually sit and endure the anxiety of being vulnerable with the people in my life or even myself is now getting this whole new feedback loop and how people were being more supportive and I have these like richer, meaningful relationships and then more of my anxiety drops and my symptoms drop. But so, what do you think it was? Because it's just how long was the MDMA session? Um, each session is... It, I, mean, I, had to, I was in the clinic because of the protocol overnight, but the effects of the medicine that were you know, really obvious <laughs> it lasted about six to eight hours. Okay, so why is it, why do you think that in six to eight hours, you were able to cure 80% of your PTSD symptoms on MDMA when you'd spent a lifetime using other therapies? What was it about the six to eight hours on MDMA for someone who's never tried psychedelic medicines before that really was able to, to help you so dramatically? I think every, I, that's, the, that, that's the greatest question you could possibly ask. I think the whole scientific community be, should be clamoring to find that out. We, I mean, I want to know personally, like, what happened? Like, no, I mean, it's not like I'm making this up. There's, there's probably entire file drawers of medical, uh, like, brilliant doctors, probably two, 20 doctors of uh, files on me for years. And then suddenly it's over? In six to eight hours. Right. <laughs> so, you know, this, this is mind-boggling. The thing that I'm told, and I, do, I did experience this, was that the medicine is a very specialized medicine that uh, enhances awareness with reducing anxiety. So if you take an anti-anxiety medicine and you do psychotherapy, you could probably, 
you know, be more able to talk about a traumatic event and address that traumatic event without falling apart and re-traumatizing yourself. But you won't because you're not anxious about it anymore. You know, you're just kind of spacing out. You're not as, as aware. Or if you don't have uh, something reducing your consciousness, the idea of going, touching base really to a traumatic event is out horrifying. I mean, it re-traumatizes you. You do that. With the assistance of the MDMA, you, it relaxed yes. your anxiety and you were able to go back and live and relive traumatic circumstances mm-hmm. that had happened in your life. And even follow the cloudy, distant memories that I had shut away and didn't want to look at. I was able to actually look at them and put together pieces of my history and my puzzle that I just kept in serious scary land, just freaking me out like a monster in the closet under the bed. Could you and, tell us about any of those well, uh, particular memories? One thing that, um, that came up was and it, what's horrible about this is that I had, um, I remembered that my mother had left me in the, uh, with this kind of cult of personality guy. They, they were like hippies and they had these ideologies about, you know, reincarnation and all this stuff. So this person was a very powerful cultish figure among these, among my, my mother and her friends. And she left me with him. Okay. For three, what I was told was going to be three weeks. What I realized, it was six weeks. So you imagine and I was four, old years, you? four old. years old. Yeah. And of course, um, anyone who's like really wants to take care of your child for you, who's got a megalomania complex, red flag, but nobody's going to think that. Of course he was a pedophile. Of course he was a monster. He was horrible. And, I, and it was an incredibly terrible experience. He was also very, very skilled at basic brainwashing techniques, how to use another kid against me to control me, how to convince me. I turned five when I was with him, how that if I told anybody that terrible things would happen and how to kind of make me think he was a magician and he had all these powers, he could read minds. And, and, you know, I really suffered in complete brainwash to repress what happened. So I didn't think it was really important to really remember or tell anybody all that had happened. But apparently defying him was important. So with this MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, I was able to say, okay, this is what I remember. And, was that and one deal of your with first the, times about and, talking yeah. about it? Um, that deeply, yes. Mm. And deal with the anxiety and the terror and the pain that that meant that somebody's going to die. My somebody I love is going to die, my mom, my kid, my whatever, that if you tell, he's going to get you. He has supernatural abilities. But that was like a huge barrier to my recovery because it was vaulted. It was systematically trained into me to have that kind of a, uh, a you know, self-destructive. It was like a, a fail-safe, you open this letter, it blows up, you know. <laughs> um, so for me... And, and this could be the case for other people um, who have been in the secrecy and shame of trauma from traumatic events where it was very complicated. You know, this is a revered and, and respected person that my mother and other people liked a lot who had this terrific power. I mean, it was a really locked in thing. With the therapy, I was able to figure out the combination lock and how to un 
untangle myself from that. It still affected me. I mean, I still had tremendous anxiety, even years later, but it wasn't making me throw up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the, like, like in regular therapy, it would be like, okay, I'm going to go to the bathroom now because this, the, the, you know, the, the, dis, the self-destruction clause would get hit. You know, it was programmed into me mm-hmm. to not exist if I told those secrets. So, yeah, very, very dangerous um, uh, territory that I could not have gone into without the assistance of my highest self where the medicine helped me access that. And if you look at the research and the results, I mean, one pilot study found that they they took people with treatment-resistant PTSD and they gave them MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, and 83% of those people with treatment-resistant PTSD were able to cure their PTSD. Compare that to 25% who were given a placebo and just given psychotherapy. So that's pretty dramatic results. And would you consider your PTSD to have been cured by the MDMA? Well, I figured it was in 2005. I mean, a year later after my treatment, the follow-up, I was still holding strong. My symptoms were 8 90% reduced. I was so grateful that I thought, yeah, I'm better. How awesome. I mean, it was better than I had my wildest dreams, and I was, I was so appreciative. Now, granted, in retrospect, most people who suffered from that last 10% would have gone that shit crazy, <laughs> you know, but in comparison to what I'd lived with for so long, I was, I was cool. So nine years later, so 2012 in April, I was allowed to go back. They, they opened up a second tier of the trial where you could come back for a third round of treatment and guess who got to go and Okay. Oh my God. Not only, I mean, now I'm cured. I mean, I probably needed a third round back then, but who knew? I mean, I was just like, oh, I'm just going to take my, I'm not going to monkey with it. Like I thought, wow, I'm fixed. Okay. But in 2012, I no longer qualified for the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is amazing. Totally amazing. And what about your health issues? Are, do you still suffer from irritable bowel no, syndrome? No, that went away in 2005. I mean, it really just stopped cold turkey. After your first MDMA session. Just stopped. Wow. Because, you know, I, I'm, I'm literally this allopathic. I went through everything. I mean, I think from 2002 to 2004, I went through stomach scopes and colonoscopies and every, you know, every acupuncture and colonics. I tried everything, herbs, diets, nothing worked. And then I have, because people tell me this is coming from hyper arousal and anxiety. You're just, you, you're just so keyed up. You're I think hyper a lot arousal. of people don't realize that when they get these bodily pains or these illnesses mm-hmm. that sometimes it can be caused by trapping trauma inside your body and it manifests itself as this physical pain. I've I've heard from several people who also use other psychedelics. Some, uh, one healer who serves ayahuasca said that a 32-year-old came in with chronic back pain and obesity, and uh, after drinking ayahuasca, she was able to realize that the cause of all of that was that she had been sexually abused as a kid, and she had just trapped that memory away in her subconscious mm. and didn't even remember having that traumatic event that was causing all of these physical symptoms. 
So I encourage a lot of people who are experiencing pains that they just can't describe where all these illnesses are coming from to really look at, at the mind. You know, oftentimes the mind-body connection is not treated in Western medicine and, and not mm-hmm. treated uh, well enough. And that's why we really support here on the show, we support the work of MAPS, uh, which funded your study. Thank God. <laughs> and, and is working to make MDMA into prescription medication by 2021. They really want to make sure that doctors have this tool. And what's fascinating about it is there are some therapists out there that see how effective MDMA is at curing people like yourself. So they're actually administering it underground because they feel like that they have a medical and moral duty to give people who are on the verge of suicide or have horrific levels of PTSD this medicine that can cure them or dramatically improve their symptoms in six to eight hours. How do you feel now that you are technically a PTSD survivor? How do you feel that this medicine isn't available to everyone in the public who needs it? Mm. That's the only trauma I really have right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's, it actually is really problematic. I mean, PTSD survivor usually have some kind of survivor's guilt, which I've always had. Um, that never actually went away, and I think it's my humanity, and it shouldn't. But it tortures me to know that I got this help, and then I know... In my world, my immediate world, I know so many people who are suffering from post-traumatic stress. Then I know the statistics on the veterans is it's, it's, it's an epidemic. And so every day that goes by that they don't have access to this treatment to me is a body count. 